Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Are you infused with World Cup fever? Or are you not sure if you're infused with World Cup fever and you have to refer the decision to four men wearing full referee's outfits sitting watching television? Then another man in a referee's outfit can tell you whether or not you are indeed infused with World Cup fever. It's been vartacular, hasn't it? There's been some good var and there has been some bad var. Today I was watching Australia versus Denmark. Denmark were a goal up. Christian Eriksen scored a very good goal for them. But then Australia got a penalty off the back of a VAR referral. I don't think it was a penalty. Sorry, Australian listeners. I'm glad you got a draw and everything else. But I think this is one that VAR got wrong. Well, not VAR got wrong. The referee who watched the replay, I think he got it wrong. But without VAR in the first place, he would have just carried on the game and been correct by not giving a penalty. Now, we have seen VAR right some wrongs in this tournament so far, and I think that is the plus side of it. That is where the advocates of VAR can say, look, the game wasn't really interrupted, the flow wasn't really interrupted, and the decision was right. But what we saw in the Denmark-Australia game was a decision that I think was wrong. However, the referee thought it was right. The Danes didn't think it was right. I don't know why the guy got a yellow card either. It was just a header against his hand from really close range. He's jumping. Of course, his hands are in the air. I don't think it's a penalty. I don't think it's a deliberate handball. So I don't know why the guy got booked. Anyway, that's by the by. But what's really interesting about all this is the people who say, yes, it's the right decision. Technology has got us the right decision. Others who are going, no, that's absolutely the wrong decision. It just proves the subjectivity of decision making when it comes to football that there isn't always a clear right and wrong. Sometimes there is, obviously. Like if you go studs first into a guy's bollocks and you burst his balls, nobody's going to look at multiple replays of that and say, hey, that was an okay thing to do. I don't think he deserved a red card there. For other things, the line is a bit more grey, isn't it? We've got grey areas, and we're seeing a bit of that when it comes to to VAR in this World Cup, but it's still something that's in its infancy. And for the most part, I think the majority of the decisions it has uh, adjudicated or, or brought about during this tournament have corrected errors and things that were wrong. And the the way it operates and the way that it has impacted the game is I think just something we're going to have to get used to and grow used to 
I was watching something the other day. It was Irish commentary on RTE television of Anfield 89. George Hamilton was the commentator and someone posted it because everybody knows the famous Brian Moore commentary. Uh, they think it's all over. It is. No, I'm kidding. You know, it's up for grabs now, Michael Thomas, etc., etc. But this was a different piece of commentary on that famous goal when we won the league in, in 1989. But in the build up to the goal, there's a back pass. Defender just plays the ball back to goalkeeper. Goalkeeper picks it up. And now you look at that and it is absurd looking. It's so strange. But that was just part and parcel of the game back then. That was the way it operated. And when that change came in, people had to get used to the fact that goalkeepers couldn't pick up the ball anymore. Actually, it's something that's uh, very well covered in Michael Cox's book, uh, Michael Cox Zone of Marking, uh, called The Mixer, which is the history of tactics in English football. But the uh, the abolition of the back pass had a huge impact on the way that the game was played and also the kind of people who played in goal because they never really had to worry about playing with their feet. All of a sudden they did. And now the technical specifications for a goalkeeper are much different from the way they used to be. And maybe we're heading down the same kind of road when it comes to VAR and video assistance in games and the stoppages that it will bring about in order to get decisions more correct. Hopefully, we might look back in a number of years' time and think that it was strange that football didn't have it or or that football looks weird without it. It certainly has been the major talking point at the World Cup so far, beyond the fact that Russia as a team have run further and faster than anybody else. I mean, it must be home advantage. You know, they're used to the air and the pitches and all that kind of stuff. So that's not really a story. Uh, One of the other big stories, of course, is Iceland and their amazing run to get to the World Cup finals and also their opening day draw with Argentina, Lionel Messi's Argentina, against the odds, you have to say, but an incredible result. A bit later on, I will be talking to Anton Svjenbjörsson, who is uh, obviously an Icelandic fan, and we're going to talk about how Icelandic football has got here, a country of just over 340,000 people How are they punching so far above their way? What does it feel like to be part of this, having never even countenanced the idea of your country playing in a World Cup? What does it feel like? And uh, we're going to chat to him a bit later on about that story. So there's something for you, World Cup related. But now, away from the World Cup, there has been Arsenal-related stuff going on this week. A lot of it's still up in the air when it comes to uh, potential arrivals and departures. But we have seen one high-profile arrival and one very high-profile departure. Bernd Lino is the new Arsenal goalkeeper. Jack Wilshire is on his way out with me to discuss those things. James from Gunnerblog. James, uh, hello to you. Goodly whatever. Goodly whatever. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks to you for coming on. <laughs> I'm back again. I mean, I'm sure everyone's so excited to hear me back. Yeah. On a, on a Friday of all days. Exactly. But it has been a busy week. There's it, been all sorts going it, on. It there, there was a particular like few-hour period, wasn't there, where the news just kept on coming. Yeah, the Wilshire and Lino news seemed to come on the same evening. I thought it was quite funny, wasn't it, that Arsenal were beaten to the punch uh, to announce their new signing by the the Bayer Leverkusen Twitter account who said, thanks very much, Bernd Lino, you've now joined Arsenal. Yeah, I wonder if they had planned to uh, unveil him quite when they did Arsenal. They were kind of forced into action, weren't they, by that? Yeah, uh, I mean, there were stories, weren't there, that that it was going to happen, that, you know, he's going to be announced tomorrow. But I wonder now, do clubs, do they have to get together uh, and say, look... 
signings are such a thing now. They're such a production, such a promotion, such a way of of getting the brand out there across your various social media platforms via the medium of content, being very wanky about the whole thing. I wonder, do they have to like come to an agreement? Okay, we'll pay you X amount of money for this guy. We'll pay it over X amount of uh, time in installments and this clause and that clause. And if he does this, that and the other. And also, we get to announce it first on Twitter. Please, if you don't mind. I mean, that's got to be built in now, I think. Yeah, surely, especially if you're going to go to the trouble of, you know, coming up with a, a specific hashtag and a little unveiling video. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that there was a bit of miscommunication there. Arsenal probably none too happy that, uh, that Leverkusen made the announcement first. But anyway, it is done. It is over the line and Arsenal have got themselves a new goalkeeper. What do you think? Because I've been reading around. I don't... Uh... I don't profess or I don't claim to be a Bundesliga expert in any way. Uh, I haven't watched a great deal of Bernd Lino down the down the years. Obviously aware of him, but I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I have seen people who watch an awful lot more Bundesliga than I do and would consider themselves, if not experts, certainly up to date and up to speed on what happens there. Expressing some misgivings about the 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 lapses in concentration that are part of his game. They say he's an excellent shot stopper. He's got great reflexes. You know, he's a big guy, six foot three, but perhaps isn't quite the dominant goalkeeper that Arsenal fans would have liked. So where where do you uh, where do you stand on the whole thing? Well, initially I, I was a bit concerned because, like you, the the reports from Germany. I mean, to be honest, a little bit like with with Socrates, with uh, Papastopoulos. Uh, I, yeah, I nearly did it. Papastopoulos. Let's just stick to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, he has not had the best of seasons in Germany. I don't think any player in the Bundesliga has made more uh, errors leading directly to goals. You never quite know how that stat is quantified, but it doesn't sound good on paper. He sounds to me like a player who had was regarded as having enormous potential and whose career has stalled somewhat. Uh, it's a little bit the same story of some of the young players we've seen at Arsenal in recent years. He was a guy who initially moved to Leverkusen on loan at uh, 19. I think Adler was the first choice at the time and he was injured and w- was so good that he essentially kept his place, made a permanent move. And I think in his first couple of seasons there, looked like a really outstanding prospect. He just hasn't kicked on. And... Uh, I suppose the optimist in me hopes that some of the backroom changes at Arsenal, which were also announced the same day, for example, the addition of a new goalkeeping coach, might be beneficial to him as he as he tries to fulfil this supposed potential he's got. Yeah, I mean, it's not cheap. Uh, I mean, I know the no. market is crazy, but it's still 20-odd million pounds for, for a goalkeeper, which I guess is a club record for us again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, like... It is a club record. Yeah. And, and sorry, I was just going to say, I mean there aren't actually that many more goalkeepers in history who have been more expensive. I know that these comparisons are tricky at the moment, what with the market being so volatile and so crazy, but I think you can almost count on one hand goalkeepers who've cost more than that. So it's a really big outlay, and I think a surprising outlay given the supposed budgetary restraints we're working under. Well, maybe maybe it's a sign that the budgetary restraints aren't quite as uh, restrainy as we uh, we think they are, or they've been reported Perhaps. to be, you know? So the other side of that is maybe they're getting ready to sell somebody to offset some of that, um, that yeah. outlay. But, you know, like you, I, I think... 
sometimes a player gets to a point in his career where he needs to change scenery to do something different to fulfill his potential. He's 26 years of age. I think that ticks the right box. He's uh, a good shot stopper. I mean, there's no real issues for uh, with him from that point of view. He can make the saves. It's about his concentration. And that's probably something that you can work on with a new head coach, a new goalkeeping coach, uh, who is going to be, I think, a bit more innovative than what we've had at the club uh, for the last number of years. Uh, Javi Garcia is his name. He worked with Unai Emery at Sevilla, I think, and also at PSG. He had a, a season with... Lukas Fabianski as well at Swansea. He was a goalkeeping coach at Swansea uh-huh. for a year. So he probably has reasonable English or has learned some English along the way as well. So that's that's a thing. And then maybe just the change of scenery as well. Something new for a player to shake you out of your comfort zone where the demands are higher, the expectations are higher. Maybe that has a positive impact on the way that you perform. Yeah, I have to hope so. I mean, also, he, he didn't necessarily play behind the most secure defence last season, by all accounts. I mean, who knows if he could be promised that at Arsenal. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think 26, you know, that is a baby for a goalkeeper, really, still. I mean, it's a full decade younger than Petr Cech. So I, I think it is plausible that he might improve upon the deficiencies that he has. And I think you have to try and focus on the positives here. This is a guy who Sven clearly believes in, apparently is tracked for some time. If you want a kind of a more positive reading of, uh, of his ability, there's a, a good article on The Independent by uh, Archie Rintut, who, who covers the Bundesliga plenty and mm. knows the player well. And certainly one area in which he's going to be a, an upgrade or improvement on our, our current keeper is is saving penalties. I think he once saved six in a single season. So uh, he's very good in, in that scenario and apparently good with his feet, apparently a brilliant shot stopper. It's just the more tactical elements of the game, the, the command of his box where mm. he has fallen down. But that does feel like something that could be coached. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking up his stats on transfer marked that particular website mm. uh, before we did the announcement and did the story on Arsblog News. Now, I can't say 100% that these are accurate stats, but he's played something like 308 games for Bayer Leverkusen and conceded 378 goals. Now, wow. again, you can't really put that down to a goalkeeper on his own. The defence plays a huge part in how many goals uh, a goalkeeper concedes. I did see another stat doing the rounds that only Manuel Neuer has had more clean sheets over the last couple of seasons than than Bernd Leno. So, look, I think we're in the in the space where, okay, it's fair to have some misgivings if you're a Bundesliga expert uh, and if you've watched him a great deal and you've seen him make mistakes, then I can understand why you might have those uh, reservations. From my point of view, I just have to see the guy play and see how he performs for Arsenal before I start making any real judgment about him. I think we needed a goalkeeper. We were uh, talking about this and have been talking about this for a long time. The need to upgrade or certainly pay attention to our goalkeeping scenario uh, has been pressing for some time. So the club have done that. They paid a club record fee for a goalkeeper who's 26, who's got years ahead of him, who can improve, who could well turn out to be the answer. It might, he might not. Of course, that's what happens with football. You never can tell. The best-looking signings aren't often the, the ones that work. So I think it, it's just a matter of him coming to Arsenal. He's got a blank slate, and we go from there. Yeah, I mean, that's how I regard it, too. What do you think, I'd be interested in your opinion, do you think he's coming in as the number one with that big price tag, or do you think he'll have to earn his place from a starting position behind Czech? That's a really good question. I 
I suspect that maybe, maybe the idea is having given Petr Cech the number one shirt, they start him as the number one goalkeeper. We've got Europa League to play. We've got League mm. Cup. We've got FA Cup. I think the division, if there is one, isn't going to be quite as... What's the word I'm looking for here? Quite as marked as it was between Ospina and Czech. So we knew Ospina was the European goalkeeper. We knew that uh, Petr Cech was the Premier League goalkeeper. It might start that way, but it might end up going the other way by the end of the season, perhaps, where the new guy comes in and impresses and becomes our first-choice goalkeeper. Personally, I would like to see a situation where our first-choice goalkeeper plays in all of our big games. So maybe the group stages of the Europa League is where you feel out this guy and let him get used to English football and get used to playing for the club and a new team, etc., etc. But when we get to the knockout stages of the the Europa League, I say when, of course, it's a bit presumptuous, but there you go. You would like to think that we're going to be able to do that under a, a manager who's won it three times. When we get to that situation and whoever is the established number one goalkeeper, whether it's Czech or whether it's Lino... I would pref- I would prefer them to play in those games mm. rather than have this demarcation between the two. Yeah, I I would hope so too. I mean, we seem to have this discussion. Well, under Arsene, at any rate, we seem to have that discussion every year. Uh, you just want to see your best goalkeeper play in your most important games. I, my hunch is that he will start as the Europa League goalkeeper, if you yeah. will, the cup goalkeeper. Um, but I think, like you, that that situation might be quite fluid over the course of the season. And you know, when you invest that amount of money in a player, you know, there's a clear there's a clear intention for him to eventually become first choice. I suppose just the fact that he's 26 means there's not necessarily the kind of rush that there might be if he were a little bit older. Mm, so you see uh, basically David Ospina as the guy to make way? Yes, I do, actually. I think his his long-awaited, long-promised may finally come to pass. All right. Okay, well, <laughs> famous last words, those, when it comes to David Ospina, but we will, uh, we will see, obviously. So yeah. look, a goalkeeper's in. And um, that's what we wanted. And we've got the defender in. We've also got Lucas Torreira coming in. Potentially, it's not done yet. I think it will happen after his um, Uruguayan World Cup exploits are over. And of course, Mm -hmm. uh, Socrates is coming in on the 1st of July, as far as we're aware. Interesting link to Ever Benega, isn't there? It's Sevilla, the Sevilla midfielder. Because uh, as I wrote in the blog yesterday, I do think that when you're playing in Europa League and you're playing Premier League and you've got, uh, you know, cup competitions as well, I'm not sure five central midfielders is enough. So people were speculating that it might be a case that if Benega is coming in, Ramsey is going out. But I think we probably need to add one more midfielder as well because Wilshire is gone. I know Cazorla wasn't there last year at all, but Coquelin went as well, didn't he, during the year? Maitland-Niles perhaps has filled that Coquelin gap. Maitland-Niles fills the cock gap. Um, But, you know, I, I think when you're looking at being competitive over the course of a season, we need more than five central midfield players. We do. I think that's fair to say. And, you know, I'm not necessarily sure if, if Joe Willock is, is going to be the guy who steps up and plays that kind of regular part this season. Mm. Perhaps he'll go out on loan or he'll be restricted to cup competitions. It's an interesting link, the Benega one. It's a real, he's a real kind of lieutenant of Emery's. He had him at Valencia, he had him at Sevilla, and now it seems he wants him at Arsenal. 
it fits the kind of profile of signing we've been looking at this summer in that it seems relatively affordable. There's talk of a, a 20 million euro release clause in his contract with Sevilla. So that doesn't feel out of out of reach necessarily. It might and be in terms less of the age even. profile as well. Oh, it might be less even. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, listen, I, I'm, I'd be intrigued by it. There, I can't lie. There's a small part of my brain thinking, does this mean something for Aaron Ramsey? I, I know you've laid out the numbers the way you have, but just, I guess, as yeah. a, a wearied and hardened Arsenal fan, I suspect that mm. maybe something maybe at play there especially when you look at us spending that money on a goalkeeper too yeah true true and um, we've got to recoup some of that money I, a few people on Twitter have been talking about this, the age profile of the signings uh, over the last little while mm. you know Mkhitaryan Aubameyang uh, 29 uh, Socrates 29 Licksteiner obviously 34 if Benega was to come in he's going to be 30 at the end of June and sort of saying you know is this not uh, what's going on there's too many old guys coming in here but I think I mean you could uh, be interested in what you think as well is that because so much of this stuff is happening quite quickly it's only six weeks ago or eight weeks ago is it when we discovered that Arsene Wenger was leaving the club that there hasn't been even with the uh, arrival of Sven Mislintat back in November that's only six months there really hasn't been the opportunity for long-term planning when it comes to recruitment so what we're looking at is bringing in players who are established it's a bit safe it's a bit reliable i have to say that i'm a little bit uncertain as to how good some of these guys are going to be to be honest i think it's uh, reasonable to have some reservations about a couple of these signings and whether or not they can fit the bill you know that's not being negative in any way i'm fully prepared to give everybody a chance and to to judge them on their merits when they play for arsenal but at the same time you know we're we're fans and we're looking at our team and we're, you know it's it's uh, it'd be boring if we weren't analyzing in some way so i do have certain reservations but i can also kind of see the logic in the way that they're operating you bring in these guys who can play for 18 months 2 years two seasons, three seasons, and then during that time, you're looking at the long-term planning where perhaps what we thought Sven Mislintat was going to be, the guy who was going to identify all this young talent and bring them in at an age where they're going to develop, he's got time to do that while we've while we've bedded or, or fleshed out the squad with these slightly more senior guys. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think... I also think that we obsess maybe a little too much on the age profile. I mean, we talk about a player maybe being good for two to three years. And I think sometimes we forget uh, how long that is in football and how useful that can be in that time. Mm. I mean, it was Aubameyang's birthday earlier this week and he was 29. And I and I sat thinking about it and I thought, well, you know, he was. we've had him for six months and people have been worrying about how old he is and he's been absolutely brilliant and absolutely blistering and 29 you know he's still got good years too good to I mean Luis Suarez is I think you know 31 going on 32 and it's banging in goals I don't I think sometimes we get a little bit too concerned I think it's a bit of a hangover from the 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 project youth era do you know what I mean I think we were sort of indoctrinated in that idea that you had to buy young Um, financially it's a bit of a risk because You've no they don't on, have the yeah. residual value. Yeah, yeah. I, but in terms of their impact on the team, I think mm, it's not such a concern. Yeah, I suppose as well there's this idea, isn't there, that once you get beyond 30, you're kind of old and decrepit and useless, which isn't necessarily mm. the case anymore as players take better care of themselves, they're fitter, they're leaner, they're less injury prone mm. because of that. Maybe in the olden days, once you got to a certain age, because of the lifestyle, because of the training methods not being as advanced as they were, 
that was a real indicator that you were on the way down. But I think players can play longer these days. Um, so, you know, we can take a take a positive out of that. So, look, yeah, uh, I, I, go on. So I was just going to say that, you know, I think we, you know, as, as fans, we lived through that era of no contracts longer than one year for anybody over 30. Yeah. But actually, that wasn't necessarily the wisest policy at the time. And I think at, at times we paid the price of being so scrupulous in that way. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm quite relaxed about the age profile. Right. OK. Well, look, uh, the other big story of the week was the departure of Jack Wilshire, who released a mm-hmm. statement on his Instagram. I think, you know, we could say that's a, a side effect of modern football, a player announcing his... Departure via social media rather than it being through official channels, but of course it allows them to to manage the message in a way. And mm-hmm. I think if you read the statement, if you read the way it was written, it was very much a case of Jack Wilshire managing the message, saying how much he loved the club. He was prepared to stay, even though the salary being on offer was less, uh, you know, reduced uh, as was widely reported, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But because of the conversation he had with Unai Emery, where he wasn't given any real assurances about playing time, he's moved on for footballing reasons. And all of that seems absolutely fine to me. Yeah, it seems completely reasonable. I mean, I imagine there has been a bit of a, a massaging of the narrative from Jack's end. Is you know, it's a little bit like when Gazidis laid out the appointment process for Emery. You know, you're getting the facts, but in a very curated fashion. But uh, it it does seem eminently reasonable that he should want to go and play football and also perhaps secure a more lucrative contract. I bet he'll earn more money in his new club than he was on offer from from Arsenal at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, that's got to be a consideration for him as well, doesn't it? 26 years of age now. He's he's had some injury problems. We know that he's been pretty uh, reliable last season and maybe the season before as well, before he got that injury at Bournemouth. He'd stayed fit for most of their campaign, which was good going Mm. for him considering the the problems that he's had in the past. But, you know, he's on a Bosman. He is uh, available uh, on a free. Therefore, you can pay out a signing on fee over the course of his contract it allows him to get a more lucrative deal it also allows him to go somewhere where he's going to be a bit more senior as well I think there's something to be said uh, for for him in that regard as well where he can go and be someone who can play regular first team football um what what's your feeling on what Arsenal actually wanted to happen with Jack Wilshire though because However way you want to dress it up, and I'm quite sure that Arsenal's offer was made in the full knowledge of his medical records and his injury record and everything else. When you offer a guy of 26 years of age reduced terms with some pay-as-you-play, with some performance or uh, uh, appearance bonuses and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really suggest that you are willing to keep him or it's not going to bother you one way or the other if he goes. Like, you're not making a big play yeah. to make him sign on, are you? No. I mean, I think that the executive team will probably be quietly content with this outcome. I think ultimately they didn't make him an offer that suggested they were they were particularly keen for him to stay. Uh, the manager didn't, you know, say, look, you're important to me, you're part of my plans. There are things you could say to a player that aren't necessarily guaranteeing them a place that still make them feel wanted. Mm. That didn't happen for Jack. Uh, and I, I just think that, 
it was not a cursory offer. I'm sure it was made in good faith, but it was an offer made, I think, in a situation where the club probably felt if they didn't make any kind of offer, there might be a bit of backlash because they know how popular Jack is with the fans. But it was an offer made in a relatively calculating manner because they, they knew he was unlikely to accept it. And I think I think they're... I think they're probably pretty relaxed about him going. Is mm-hmm. that your impression as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think if they'd really wanted to keep Jack Wilshire, they would have made him an offer that that he wouldn't have turned down or, or prevaricated yeah. over for the last 12 months or so, you know? So, look, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Because uh, everything else aside, he was a player who, when he broke through and was starting to break through, there were such high hopes for you know, touted as probably the best young talent to come out of our academy since Liam Brady. You know, he was an exciting, talented... You could see the talent. You could always see the talent, but it just never happened for him because of the injuries and because of the way all those injuries hampered his development. They hampered his breakthrough into the team. You know, they Mm. were real setbacks. They were setbacks in terms of his development as a player, as a man, as a person. You know, frustrating and difficult to deal with. And maybe he didn't always behave the right way at times but I'm sure that is born out of being a young man and being frustrated and all those kind of things and whoever hasn't done anything that they look back on as a young man without regrets you know fair play to you but (laughs) you know it is a shame that it's ended in the way it has because I think most of us would have liked to see Jack Wilshere become the player we all wanted him to be that night against Barcelona for example you know that was the moment where I think if I could liken it to another performance. I remember being at the Bernabeu in 2006 when Arsenal played Real Madrid and obviously Thierry Henry scored the goal and people Mm. wax lyrical about that. But I can remember very clearly reading the newspapers on the way back to Barcelona from Madrid that that year uh, and people talking about this being the game when Cesc Fabregas came of age. He had this standout Mm. performance on the biggest stage and he kicked on from there. And Jack was never able to do that after the Barcelona game. No, and it's been... I mean, I think for the last two seasons, really, I've kind of more so been of a mind that it was probably time for, yeah. for Jack and Arsenal to part ways. Uh, but even so, since the announcement's been made and there have been various compilations and you know very nice little bits of media put together online, and it, it does make you feel... Uh, sad and nostalgic to lose a guy who's an academy product and who had such promise but I think I have to check myself and realise that I'm kind of mourning the loss of the player Jack Wilshire might have been rather yeah. than the player that he is Yeah. Uh, and I think it has been that way for some time really and I think you know it it, it is uh, sad to see him go but it's far sadder that he did not become the player he looked like he might be because it, it's it's hard to remember now but he was absolutely enthralling to watch as a 16 year old and 17 year old you know I I hadn't seen anything quite like that before I mean in terms of his uh, ability it was you know there were comparisons people calling him the English Messi and it wasn't completely ludicrous at that point Um, but it just you know as you say other things got in the way Mm -hmm. and I think as well Something worth remembering is that we feel like we've lost, you know, one of our own Academy products. But I saw a, a tweet this morning, or I think it was a couple of days ago, actually, from at Gunasanti. And they said, I hope fans remember that Maitland, Niles, Iwobi and Nelson are all Arsenal through and through like Wilshire and should be supported as well as he was. And I think that's a, a, an interesting point. I think, you know, Jack's not the only guy in the squad 
who's yeah. an academy product, who loves the club, who's part of the culture here. And I think that even if others aren't necessarily as vocal about it or might not fit your idea of what an Arsenal man is, we do have those guys in the squad and we should still be proud of that and recognise that in them. Mm, that's a very good point. It is a very good point for sure. And, you know, in some ways, I'm not saying Jack got away with things, but people, you know, when they're predisposed to you in a friendly way, you you are forgiven a little bit. You're given a bit more leeway for poor performances or or not playing quite as well as uh, as you might, whereas others don't seem to uh, to be given that luxury. So anyway, look, wherever he ends up, I, I wish him the very best. I hope it goes well for him. I hope he stays fit first and foremost, because I think if he does stay mm. fit, he's probably clever enough to manage his game, uh, you know, to, to fit into a new team and to, to be effective. So I, I very much hope that's the case for him. Um, finally, the, the coaching staff of Unai Emery mm. was announced during the week and Juan Carlos Carcedo is his longtime assistant who's coming in but he's he's one of two assistants Steve Bold is staying with Arsenal uh, yep. as a, an assistant uh, head coach now not assistant manager but an assistant head coach the other staff um, you know Darren Burgess is there there's a video analyst there's the Javi Garcia who's the goalkeeping coach as we mentioned a couple of other people as well were you surprised at the retention of Steve Bold? I was at first. I was at first. Uh, I think we spoke about it and we wondered whether Steve Bold would be even willing mm. to stay on uh, and accept a role, perhaps with diminished responsibilities. I mean, it is effectively diminished responsibilities because there's no longer just one assistant. There are now two. Um, that's not particularly unusual in top clubs. I, I think I said that Pep Guardiola has three, of which Brian Kidd is one, someone who predated him and stayed on to help that kind of settling in process. And yeah. I imagine Bold's role will be similar. I, I, in the in the sort of, you know, couple of days since, I have adjusted to it and thinking about it, it does make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I imagine Emery's staff is similarly, uh, are similarly limited with their English as he is. Yeah. Um, and that someone who's a fluent English speaker and who knows these players, who knows the opposition, who knows the training ground, just that basic knowledge, I think, will surely be useful uh, in Emery's first season in charge. So I I think it does actually make sense. And maybe, who knows, maybe Steve Bold will kind of open up as a coach and we'll see Mm. more of him and more from him than he got the opportunity to do under the previous regime. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think he's been kept on just because he knows Arsenal. He's been kept on because... He's been seen as somebody who can be an asset both around the mm. club, obviously, to to provide that connection. You know, you can't on one hand bemoan the lack of Arsenal and then bemoan the fact that we've kept somebody whose connection with the club goes back, you know, to the 1980s. You know, that's that doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's a sensible move. It is a good idea to have people around who know the club, who know the traditions, who know the way things work around the club. Unai Emery might want to put his own stamp on things, but having Steve Bold around, I think, is a, is a decent idea. The players know him well, so it's not necessarily uh, uh, an abrupt transition from one uh, era to another. We've got that link, and if he's allowed to do some work on the training ground, if he's allowed to work with the defence, you can't say he doesn't have the knowledge there to, to make an impact. No, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, I think he, he got a fair bit of stick towards the end of Arsene Wenger's reign, but perhaps it's uh, fair to give him a, a crack of the whip in mm. a different setup. W- were you surprised that uh, Jens Lehmann wasn't retained? No, not really. Um, 
simply because we don't really know what Jens did. He was a first-team coach, but a, a guy up in the stands, perhaps an analyst uh, slash coach. Mm. They obviously decided, I mean, this is where it is. They they looked at the staff and they decided they didn't want Jens Lehmann. They did want Steve Bold. And I don't think anybody is going to, um, you know, any new manager or new head coach, whatever it is you want to call him, has to have the people he wants around him. That's why I don't think Steve Bold has been foisted upon him. I think Emery is okay with having Steve Bold there. I think that's part of the reason why he's got the job is because uh, Unai Emery wants him, whereas he didn't want Jens Lehmann. And that's the way football goes. Jens wasn't <laughs> he wasn't that happy about it, though, was he? No, not at all. I mean, that was yeah, a very salty uh, tweet from him. But, you know, it, I, I agree with you that Emery presumably has had his say on matters. I was a little bit surprised Jens didn't stay on simply because he had always felt a bit to me like a a gazee disappointment to be honest, you know, an appointment that was uh not foisted on the manager but made under some pressure. But I guess he was still associated with that regime and it's mm. up to Emery who he, who he wants on his staff. And I guess there's only room for so many first team coaches as well. Exactly. Exactly. No doubt Jens will uh, have plenty to say about it. Uh, at some point in the future. I'm sure we'll hear more. <laughs> I'm, yeah, sure I'm sure we'll hear much, much more. Uh, I'm sure we will. All right. Well, look, James, uh, that's the Arsenal bits and pieces from this week. So thanks very much. We'll catch you on Monday for the Arsecast Extra. Speak to you then. Bye-bye. Thanks to James. He'll be here on Monday with another Arsecast Extra. So make sure you join us for that. If you are looking for something else to listen to over the weekend and you're not already an Arsebog member on Patreon, sign up right now for just five euros per month and you can listen to my interview with former gunner Philippe Senderos. I spoke to him last week. We had a really good chat about his career, his time at Arsenal, how it started so well and ended in not the way that he would have liked, uh, where he is now, what he's planning for the future, and he talks in great affection about his time here and also Arsenal as a football club right now. He remains a, a big fan, but if you want to hear that, and if you want to get access to all the other content we have there, you can sign up right now, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. It is five euros per month plus VAT if you're in the EU. If you're not in the EU, you don't have to worry about that kind of thing at all. And uh, it does help support everything that we do on Arsblog and Arsblog News, the Arscast and everything else. So if you think what we do is worth a fiver to you a month, that's a pint of beer or half a pack of smokes or whatever it is that you could spend a fiver on in an instant in a shop, think about subscribing to Patreon com forward slash arsblog we would really really appreciate it and we appreciate of course all the people that have signed up already you are the best thanks very much indeed flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company united healthcare insurance plans offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Right. The World Cup is on. And one of the stories of the World Cup so far has been Iceland, not just their qualification, but their opening result, a 1-1 draw with Argentina, a pretty extraordinary result and extraordinary performance. And with me to discuss Iceland and Icelandic football and the World Cup experience is Anton Svenbjörsson. Yes? Yes. Good. It's much more difficult to say than you think when you're uh, from this part of the world. Uh, welcome to the show, first and foremost. Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've heard you before on Second Captains uh, talking about Iceland and the the rather amazing run you had at the last European Championships, but here we are at a World Cup. When you saw the opening game against Argentina and the quality of the opposition that was there, what was your expectation for that game, even taking into account what Iceland have done to get to the World Cup, what they did in the Euros and everything else. Realistically, what were you expecting? What were you thinking? I mean, it's hard to say because nothing can quite prepare you for what it's like to face Lionel Messi when you grow up in a country that the most talked about game in all of our entire history is a game we lost 14-2 to Denmark. And that was the that was the first televised game in Iceland's history, and we played Denmark, our former colonial lords, and mm. and we went into that game with the attack with the intent of attacking from kickoff, and ended up losing 14-2. <laughs> and it it was an event that traumatized the nation. It was a, like. I mean, this happened years and decades before I was born, and it's the game I knew better than any other game in the nation's history. Right. And, and you know, try as you might, it's really hard to understand what that's like because everyone loves a good underdog story, but no one wants to actually be in the position. You don't know... <laughs> You don't know what it's like to feel time just slow down to molecular level. And every time he touches the ball, you're just waiting for him to just stab you through the heart and just break (laughs) all of your expectations. And it's so weird because there's no middle ground. There's just either you get emotionally crushed by the weight of playing Messi at the World Cup or you get an amazing result. And there's just seemed to be no middle ground. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a, an incredible performance. You know, defensive organization and structure and all those things are perhaps things that uh, people take for granted when it comes to a football team. But, you know, I come from Ireland, which is not necessarily the biggest country in the world either. I know it's um, uh, Iceland is, is much, much smaller, but there's something similar in the sense that there's a, a pretty small pool of players to, to choose from. The players aren't necessarily coming from the, the best clubs around. But we here seem to have a problem with the thing that you guys are doing amazingly well, which is knowing exactly what it is that you want to do and working hard and staying organized and doing that. It, it sounds easy. It's definitely not easy to do that. It takes a huge amount of physical energy, huge amount of concentration, huge amount of uh, mental uh, energy as well. So from watching from over here, it, it's really brilliant to see that uh, what what's going on is a team that is perhaps much greater than the the sum of its parts. Yeah, well, I was just about to say that that um, Iceland's strength really is in the 
is fundamentally that the whole is more than the sum of its part. Yeah. Part. And I think also having a team that fully buys into what they're doing. And, you know, it's kind of weird because, uh, because we have such a unique style of football, but it's also in so many ways just outdated. Mm. And, and I think, at least for me personally, and this is something that uh, I have written about before and, and, and extend on, is that owning your national identity is, is a freeing experience. It's, there was such a wave of international football that everyone had to be the next Spain and then everyone had to be the next Germany and everyone had to be the next France and all of that. But as we saw just last week, that not even the Germans are that good at doing what Germany do. So anyone who has spent the last four years trying to emulate them just wasted four years of football development. Yeah. So what has happened to Icelandic football to get you to the European Championships, to get you through... Uh, a challenging World Cup group to get you to the World Cup in Russia this year because the I think the gap fr- at an in- international level has narrowed considerably between some of the teams. You know, you talk about that 14-2 defeat and regularly we would see the smaller teams across Europe in the European Championships get absolutely pummeled. And there are still big results and big wins. But I think in general, perhaps the, the gap has narrowed. But what has brought... Iceland, this, do you call it success? Is it success just to get to the World Cup? I I think it is. It has to be, doesn't it? I mean, relatively speaking, yes. Like anything, just the last eight months have just been one giant high of surreal emotions because, because, and and this is something that I have tried to explain to people, but, you know, 343,000 is just a number. It's just a statistic, but it doesn't fully grasp how small Iceland was. And, you know, as someone who loved football more than anything, how much it just truly hurt how bad we were. We were... (laughs) Because it's not like we're overachieving or breaking the glass ceiling or something. It's like stepping into an alternate reality and constantly having to reassure yourself that you're not just dreaming or something. Mm. Because when I grew up, and I can almost guarantee with all of the players in the World Cup squad, you know, we had favorite teams, just like you support the a football team, you know, yeah. whether it's Arsenal or Liverpool or Manchester United. For me, that was, you know, coincidentally enough and and um, something I will expand on later. But my fa- like my team at the World Cup was Argentina. Right. Because, because the idea of ever supporting Iceland was just a thought that never entered my mind. So you had to pick some team to make the World Cups interesting or the European Championships interesting, yeah. Yes, exactly. And it was, you know, for a lot of people. And for me, there was Argentina. And so 
my first World Cup was the 98 World Cup. And I, even though I didn't speak the language or knew anyone from Argentina, I, I knew where it was on the map, but that was about <laughs> it. And then I, and then for those four or five weeks that the World Cup was on, I felt truly Argentinian. I can still remember <laughs> Batistuta thinking it over the goalkeeper with the with his toe. And I remember his hat trick at the World Cup against Jamaica. And it was the it was the first time I'd ever actually heard the word hat trick. I only knew the Icelandic word up until that point. Right. And and it was a weird feeling, and this was a completely normal thing because the idea of watching the World Cup, thinking, "Oh, I'm so upset, Iceland aren't in it," is just the, yeah. you know, <laughs> that was not an actual thought anyone had. There was no one thinking, "Oh, if only our star player hadn't gotten injured, we would be playing now." <laughs> that was just like, you know, the best result we got was getting fourth in a six six-team group and yeah. being like, you know, hopefully we can build on this over the next 20 years and then sometime maybe make it third. So what what has happened? What's what's well, What's gone on behind the scenes? Because clearly it's not an accident. Maybe, you know, when, when football clubs and football teams come together, there is an element of right place, right time. And there's, you know, sometimes the ingredients just come together. But behind that, there has to have been something more. So what, what is it? Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the football history of Iceland should be split into two categories. There is before Iceland hired Swedish coach Lars Lagerbeck and after Iceland hired Swedish coach Lars Lagerbeck because he more than anyone in the history of our football heritage and culture changed everything from the top down. He was like, uh, actually a very good equivalent would be Wenger taking over at Arsenal. Mm. There was a culture of, you know, having a few drinks and when, and this is not a criticism. There was this, the way the game was in those days. And it was players who played overseas, came home, and then they would just hang out with their friends and families and go clubbing just because they were in Iceland. And when Lars Lagerbeck came in, there were just, you know, it was small changes, but there was, but there was a structure, there was a, there was a level of respect and responsibility that had never fully been expected of anyone and it was just small things it was things like not bringing coffee to team meetings because if you're just drinking coffee you're not just paying attention to the coach and you know no candy on weekends and and just tiny things that had never been a thing and he changed all that and he pushed them and mm. and also there's a element of you know you it's always a golden generation once they actually make it. Yeah. So, you know, there have always been good players. And I mean, you know, and this is something that I've only ever talked about with other Icelandic people. But now with the attention of the world, you start talking about it. But there was an Icelandic player on the Barcelona team that 
that uh, Pep Guardiola coached, you know, the best team in the world, you know. Yeah. David Villa and Thierry Henry and Leo Messi and the guy from Iceland. You know, it's a, it's an absolutely ludicrous thing. And the most remarkable thing is that our success came after he retired. It's only after the most superior player by a country mile left the national team that we actually took off. Mm, this is uh, Ida Gudjansson, by the way. That's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, and that's kind of weird. And it was, a, it was a strange feeling because obviously he had elevated Icelandic football from within just by virtue of being someone who trained with Ballon d'Or winners and Champions League winners and World Cup winners and you know, that's the invaluable experience that he brought to the national team. And there's a element of bittersweet, what do you call it? Like a, there's a bittersweet emotion tied to it because yeah. if anyone in our entire history deserves to be at the World Cup, it should be him. And he retired after we lost to Croatia in 2013. Mm which by the way still hurts <laughs> in like like Croatia to and Iceland is a bit like Liverpool and Chelsea between 2004 and 2007 like we've played each other at every level since 2013 and they knocked us out at the final playoff qualifier in 2013 and then now we threw them at the World Cup and there's there's definitely a score to settle. <laughs> it's good to have enemies and, though. And, and and it's a weird thing because like, you know, how many Champions League winners are in Croatia's squad and instead of being terrified of them, every single Icelandic person is thinking now is our moment to get our revenge. Sure. <laughs> and... <laughs> And that's just a weird feeling considering that, you know, some of the starters aren't even championship level footballers. And But after you shut out Leo Messi, then you kind of believe that you can do pretty much anything you set your mind to. True. I mean, Nigeria tomorrow in the World Cup, what, what's the what's the mood like? I mean, is it a case that you're you're looking at them and the way they played in their first game and going, well, you know, if we can defend the way we defended against Argentina, if it breaks our way, get a little bit of luck, uh, perhaps. Uh, it was a good save by the keeper from Lionel Messi's penalty, but it wasn't necessarily the greatest penalty either. You know, it's it's a, a little from column A, a little from column B. I mean, is there genuine expectation that you can get a result and get a win against Nigeria? I mean, you've beaten England recently, as everybody who's listening to this will know, so why not Nigeria? Yeah. I mean, that is actually a strange thing about Icelandic sporting culture is that we always rise to the occasion and we are never in more danger of dropping points or losing games than games we are expected to win. Yeah, that's because like Arsenal. I think we all yeah, understand because, that. <laughs> because there's a, it's such a weird thing because, like I said, people think of, you know, 343,000 people and all of the statistics that are neatly packaged in nice little bulletin points that, you know, if 
if there was a ratio of players instead of a quota, then Russia would have brought 11,000 players to Iceland's 23 <laughs> and all of that. You know, that's nice and that's fun and that's something, you know, that's a fun bit of trivia. But like, though that's our actual reality. That's not something you smile at and find funny and amusing and never think about it. So mm. That was just your reality. You know, you, you're born on this frozen rock in the middle of the North Atlantic with the closest border to you, like the closest landmass border is literally just a frozen piece of ice. It's a glacier <laughs> floating in the ocean. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. a, there's not a lot of, you know, there's no international rivalry. There's no Netherlands versus Germany, there's no England, France or whatever. There's just, we're just there. And right up until the tourism boom, like we were just basically forgotten in the North Atlantic for most of my life. And to all of a sudden be expected and have people saying like, oh, of course you're going to beat Nigeria and... And it's going to be easy. And of course, Iceland can do it. And it's just a bit like, yeah, that's easy for you to say. For, for <laughs> me, that's like rebuilding my worldview brick by brick, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like you said, I think your, your uh, analogy of uh, existing in an alternate dimension is, is a very good one because of just how far out of anybody's mindset this would have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It's incredible. And I know we have a lot of uh, Icelandic Arsenal fans and a lot of them will be listening to this. So, you know, I'm fully on board with the whole Icelandic experience uh, for this for this World Cup and beyond. Um just a couple of quick questions. What are you making of the tournament overall? Um, we're seeing a lot of penalties. VAR obviously is playing a part in that. What's your view on that? Um, I mean, I'm kind of fine with it because I'm now so emotionally invested in Iceland's success that I've never actually watched the World Cup without being super involved with a team like Argentina and just yeah. wanting them to win. And now all of a sudden, like every game I watch is a potential opposition and I'm I'm watching with in excruciating detail and taking mental notes of how we can hopefully exploit this. And as someone who's, I would say probably, I watched maybe 90% of the World Cup games played during my lifetime. And it's just such an extreme transformation. And then things like VAR are something that, you know, everyone is focusing on and making a big deal out of. And I'm just sitting there, you know, twiddling my fingers thinking, oh, my God, 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 we could actually play these people, you know. And and it's just, it's so much fun. And, you know, that, People are complaining about, you know, penalties and set pieces and not enough goals and not enough drama and VAR taking all of the suspense out of it. But, you know, when you're from Iceland, at least from my perspective, this is the most fun sporting event in the history of time. This is <laughs> this is like I'm just I feel six years old again and 
you know, the amazement that I felt watching the World Cup for the first time when, you know, when I turned eight and just like this had been the moment I had waited for ever since someone told me what the World Cup was and what it represented. And just the sheer excitement and joy of just being able to channel the inner child that you have and just be completely in the moment of every game is just incredible. So mm. well, look, bar and yeah. penalties and all of that is just, it's just, it's just white noise in the sure. background of secondary of the, yeah it's uh i was just gonna say that it, it's very rare uh, as you grow up and as you're as you become an adult that you that you experience things like that in their purest form you know the excitement of sport the excitement of a world cup the excitement of a game of football i think it's very easy and it, you know because of the coverage not just of the world cup but i mean football in general uh, the proliferation of coverage and non-stop um, manner in which football is covered these days, and I, you know, I understand that Ars blog and doing what I do is is a part of that. That we're always on. You, you kind of become, or it's easy to become, a little bit cynical or a little bit jaded with it all. So it's amazing to hear somebody who is just absolutely in it for the pure joy. Um, and I'm slightly envious of that, I have to say, because it, it's such a cool thing. You have been writing about this or documenting this a little bit as well. So if you want to tell people where they can find what you're putting together, I'm sure they'll be really interested. Yeah. So I think the easiest way to do that is just follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at Anton Stottl, which is a terrible pun on Aristotle, which was an old username on a forum <laughs> I had way, way back and never expected more than 20 times the population of Iceland to see. But, you know, it mm -hmm. is what it is and you just have to live with it. And um, that's where I will post all of my articles and the audio series that I am working on. Cool. Well, look, we'll, yeah, we, we'll uh, we'll post a link on the blog uh, today as well. The post on our blog, mm -hmm. which uh, which has this podcast on it, we'll uh, have a link to that blog and to the audio stuff as well. Well, look, all I can do is wish you the best of luck. I hope the uh, the journey and the excitement and this uh, this amazing experience continues for you and for all the Icelandic fans. Anton, thanks a million. Been great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you too. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear once. Uh Want to sober up from winning the trophy. Yeah, exactly. We'll catch you sometime in late September when you've sobered up. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to Anton. Follow him on Twitter at Anton Stottle. That is at Anton Stottle for Icelandic World Cup Madness. And you can find a link to the stuff we were talking about on today's blog, which is, of course, on arsblog.com. So there you go. There's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you as ever for listening. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra. Enjoy the World Cup weekend. Hope the weather is good. Enjoy a few beers and all the rest. So until Monday, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Good evening, sir. How can I help you? 
table for two, is it? I see. Um, well, I'm afraid we're very busy this evening. Um, I'm not sure. What's the name? I'll see if I can squeeze you in somewhere. Messi. Lionel Messi, I see. Um, I'm afraid, sir, that we're not going to have anything available until much, much later on. This restaurant, as I'm sure you know, is only for the very best players in the world. And the way that we judge that, of course, is what they do at a World Cup. You, I'm afraid, you've you've fallen short of the requirements. But, of course, if you and your lovely friend here would like to have a drink at the bar, then maybe, perhaps, there's a cancellation and we could fit you in by that table over there, by the toilets. Yes, I know, I know, it's not ideal, but it's the best we can do for a player of your standing, if you like. If you'd excuse me, sir, we have another guest here. Oh, Mr. El Haji Juf, how are you? A pleasure to see you again, of course, of course. Chef's table for you, is it, sir? Yes. Your friend Mr. Squilacci's just over there as well. You might want to say hello. Yes, truly, truly, a meeting of the greats here this evening. Mr. Messi, if you wouldn't mind waiting over there by the bar. By bar, I mean fire exit. And by, by, I mean outside, in the alley, in the rain, beside the tramps. No, I understand, of course. Enjoy your Nando's. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.